All right, so uh, we're going to look into Scripture and continue on in our series we started a, a couple weeks ago called We All Live in the Same House. But I wanted to stop before we got there, and this will actually lead into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, back in February, I was invited to go to India and spent about a week in India early in the month of February. And I've been telling you since I got back, oh, I'll tell you about it soon, I'll tell you about it soon, I'll tell you about it soon. Well, today is soon. So I want to tell you a little bit of my experience in India. The goal of my participation in this trip, about 15 of us went there, my, the goal of my participation was to see how Lakeside might be involved with this group in India called GEMS that is busy starting churches among some of the poorest, some of the neediest villages in the nation of India, especially up in the northeast section in a state called Bihar. And so I was the only one from Lakeside that went, but I went with people from other churches in our region. There are several churches that have sponsored villages in the state of Bihar, and I was trying to learn from them. What are they doing, and how is it working, and and what would be possibilities for us? And so uh, we went to some of these villages that are already sponsored, then we went to some villages that are not yet sponsored that Lakeside may jump in and help with with some resources. Uh, Most of the villages that we visited are comprised of people who form a group called commercial sex workers. It's actually a group of people, and their custom, their culture is when their daughters grow up to be about 12 or 13 years old, they become what they call dancing girls, and that's a euphemism for prostitution. And they will go to a club, they'll dance, they'll attract a man's attention, and then you can take the story on from there. 12 or 13 years old. And families carry this on generation after generation. And so we, when we got there, we went to one village that is sponsored by another church here in our region. And uh, the pastor of that church was with us, and uh, he had on his phone a picture of a girl that he met in the village two years ago who had come and been a part of this program. What they do is because they know that reaching the adult generation is almost a lost cause because of the pressures of that culture, the goal is to work with children and to start with children, much like we do in Kids Fest and in Blitz, to start with children and then to uh, bring them to faith in Christ and raise them up with uh, values that are Christ-honoring values and see where it goes from there. So uh, this, this other pastor had a picture of this girl on his phone, and we were looking for her. She had started in this children's program, but she dropped out recently. She'd stopped coming. And so we went to the village, and we're showing people the picture on the phone, and we're saying, do you know this girl? Yeah, yeah, we know she lives over, you know, one, one first person we met, she lives over there. Then we saw another person on the street, do you know this girl? Yeah, she lives over there. I'm like, okay, we're, I don't know how we're ever going to find this girl. We went to visit another family uh, of commercial sex workers and we got out from that family got out back to the street and the girl was in the street she'd heard we were looking for so she came and found us so we all met up in the street we went to her house some of the women from our group went into the house with the girl and with her mom and they were talking inside and and us men the men who were with us were standing on the outside talking to the dad and while we're talking to the dad uh very quickly we were surrounded by men standing there like this I'm like, this is a little intimidating. And uh, our translator, who's one of the Indian missionaries who works in this, in this village, uh, he leaned over to me at one point during the conversation. He said, he's not giving us straight answers. He's not telling me straight answers. I said, well, why not? He said, because he's afraid of the mafia, which I assume were the people that had circled around us that day. 
See, in my own naivete, as I looked at this, I thought, well, these families could stop this anytime they want. They just need to change their focus, and we need to bring Jesus there, and then it'll all change, except that if a family ever decided that they wanted to stop putting their daughters into the business, they still would have to pay organized crime leaders their cut. And in that community, there's nothing that they can do to earn enough money to pay that cut. And so it goes on and it goes on and it goes on, generation after generation. This girl, whom we found in the street, had dropped out of the children's program because her time had come, her age had come, and she was now serving as a dancing girl. The day we left for the airport, we were being driven to the airport by an Indian driver and one of these Indian missionaries who was serving as our translator. There were two of us in the vehicle with them as we're driving back to the airport and this translator, this missionary began telling us a story that had happened just the day before in his village that he serves in. He was talking to about a 12-year-old girl and she told him she was suicidal. She said, I'm, I'm about ready to finish my life because her time to go into the business had come or was coming. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to finish my life. And at the same time, he's having this conversation with this girl her mom is right there in the conversation, but she's having another conversation with another woman who has a two-year-old baby girl with her. And the mom is doing a business transaction to buy the girl from this other woman. She bought that girl to be her daughter, to raise her up as an adopted daughter, but she bought her for 3,000 rupees, which is about $46. And she'll raise that girl up in her family for the next 10 years until she becomes of age, and then she'll put her in the business. And it turns out that the 12-year-old that this missionary was talking to is also a daughter of this woman. She was also purchased about 10 years ago, and she raised her up in her family, and now she's in the business. And I look at that, I look at the insidious nature of that and how it gets passed from generation to generation and all the crime that goes along with that. I'm like, how would you ever change that? And yet, over the last 40 years, this organization that we're talking about working with, they have started over 1,200 churches throughout India, many of them working with these kinds of villages, and they're seeing things change. Uh, Brother Augustine is a man who leads that organization. He has a little saying that he uses. He says, where the gospel goes, good things follow. I believe that. Where the gospel goes, good things follow. And what if you could reach 50 children in a community? And some of those children, and maybe all, maybe all those children come to faith in Christ and they hear for the first time that there is one God who loves them. There's one God who created them, one God who loves them, one God who sent a son, his son to redeem them and rescue them. One God. And what if they could believe in that one God? And what if, what if a whole generation of children grew up in faith in Jesus and it began to change their culture? and began to change our community. What would that be like? And it's interesting because I, as I went in there, I thought, well, they're going to be pretty close to what we're doing because of all the economics that go with this. They're going to be pretty close to what we're doing, yet we went into one village that's not yet sponsored. It's a village we may sponsor at Lakeside as we go along, and uh, they welcomed us in. 
When we got to the edge of the village, we were walking in. We had to park a ways away, and we walked down this dirt road, got to the village. As we get to the edge of the village, children are coming out from everywhere, and there are women around there, not very many men in this village at that time of day for some reason. But we came in. We kind of had a little parade through the street. We got to a kind of a little public square in their village about the size of our lobby, and all these children gathered together, and they sat down and listened as we sang songs with them, and as they sang some of their songs to us, and then one of our team members shared a little story about Jesus from the Bible, and they welcomed that message. At the end of the time, we're talking with some of the people that had gathered together, and there was this one young boy who was standing there in the crowd waiting while all the other kids went off to play wiffle ball or cricket or something. This one little boy is waiting to talk to us, but he needed a translator. And when the translator was finally available to him, he just looked up and he said, uh, I'd like to have one of those Bibles you talked about. What if that kid became a follower of Christ? What if God did something in that kid to raise him up to be a missionary in that village someday? Or maybe that village would send him out to be a missionary in another village someday. Maybe that boy would be one who changes the state of Bihar for Christ's sake. What if 50 girls in a village could be rescued from sex trafficking before they were ever trafficked? Because the church on the other side of the planet said, we care about you. And your life matters to God, and because your life matters to God, it matters to us. Would you engage in that? I would. We're trying to figure out our next steps there. We're trying to figure out how the Lord wants us to be engaged. It's a beautiful thing that there are a group of churches in the Sacramento region that are sponsoring villages in a region in Bihar that is roughly equal in size to our region here. And so churches here are sponsoring villages there so that maybe someday there will be a group of churches here that have sister churches there that say, we all share this together. I think that would be amazing. That's what we're about. That's what we're up to. That's what we're thinking about. As you remember to pray for the ministry of Lakeside Church, would you add this peace to your prayers for us? Would you pray for wisdom and discernment and faith to be able to take the next steps forward, to be able to bless maybe a whole village in India and see what God would do through us in that? Would you pray for that? All right. I want to pray for that before we go on, okay? Father in heaven, you are good. You're good in every way. Sometimes the way we see your goodness looks different, Lord, from one geographic area to another. And we sitting in this room would say, I'm certainly glad I was born in this place or I was able to be in this place. And we look at people that live in villages like I've described and we go, how unfortunate to be raised in that place. But Lord, your good news is for everybody not just us, not just in this place. So would you lead us? Would you pave the way of you as you have already been doing? Would you pave the way to make a difference as we uh, 
sponsor a village or two and start churches and begin to work with children and raise them up as followers of Jesus, would you go ahead of us and pave the way and open the door for your gospel? Lord, we trust you. We look to you. And today we ask you to teach us who you want us to be in our own families. Amen. So when you think about these people that I've described, and when I think about these people that I've just described, my response to that, and maybe yours as well, my response to that can easily be, I'm certainly glad I'm not them. I'm certainly glad I don't live there. I'm certainly glad I don't, I'm not involved in all of those kinds of things. I'm certainly glad about that. But we started a series a couple of weeks ago called We All Live in the Same House. And what's true of us in our culture here, in our little world here, is true of us in the whole world. We all live in the same house. Human beings have the same conditions. We have the same heartache, the same frustrations, the same challenges. And sometimes they, they look a little bit different. Sometimes they look vastly different. But the pain is the same. The pain is in the family. Whether it's in northern India or whether it's in Folsom, California. We all live in the same house. And you say, yeah, but I'd never sell my daughter. I would never do that. I say, no, I would never do that either. There are families there who wish they would never have to do that. And yet in our world here, in our little world here in Folsom, there are threats to our families. There are threats to our households. Different threats, but still threats to the health, to the well-being to the wholeness of our households. And those threats have been going on for thousands of years. And yet they're still fresh for us today. I want you to see some words from Scripture that talk about this. So um, if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Turn left and go back a little bit. Matthew or Malachi chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the chair next to you. Or you can pull out your smartphone and open up the YouVersion Bible app and go to the live section. You'll find some notes for Lakeside Church for this weekend. Or you can just listen. Malachi chapter 2. Let me read you a little bit of what the prophet says. Now, the prophet Malachi has been giving a series of talks to the people of Israel that he's speaking with uh, on this occasion as he's writing. And he's saying, you guys, you've wandered away from God in this way, and you've you've grown cold to God in this way. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 13, and he gives gives another way in which they've sort of abandoned ship with God. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, he says this. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or, or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. 
So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The people of Israel and Malachi's generation were concerned. They were maybe even telling the prophet, they're saying, look, Mr. Malachi, we, we bring our offerings to God and we make sacrifices to God and we come to the worship gatherings of the people of Israel and, and yet God's not hearing us. It's like we, we keep praying our prayers to him, but he's not listening to us. Something's broken in the system. We don't get it. What's wrong? Malachi says, well, here's what God says to you. He says, you, you've been unfaithful to your wife. You've practiced infidelity in your marriage. So he says, be on guard. And don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Now, let me just stop before we go on with what Malachi is saying. We have a, a mixed crowd in our, in our room today. We have some people who are married to the wife of their youth. We have some women who are married to the husband of their youth. Beautiful. We have some people that are divorced among us. Okay. We have some people that are married and that are divorced and remarried. They're not married to the wife of their youth anymore. We have some people that are not married at all. We have some people that have never been married. So there's a lot of difference in our room today. I get that. There is something that God has to say in his word, in his book about your life from this situation. So when I say, uh, or when Malachi says, you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth, you take that and broaden that out to where you are in your story. What he says to us, what he says to every one of us is, be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to your spouse, in your family. Be on your guard. I had an opportunity several years ago now to speak at a men's retreat for a, a friend of mine who's a pastor down in Fremont, California. And uh, you know, typically when, I, when a pastor goes and speaks at a retreat or something, they're, they're paid some money. It's like, thanks for doing this. Here's, you know, some remuneration for what you've done. And so at the end of this re- men's retreat, I did a, a whole series for them on the life of King David, just like Pastor John did for us a few weeks ago. And uh, so we talked about King David and all the things that go on. And then at the end of that time, they called me up on the stage again. They gave me a check, which was wonderful. And then they go, and we have something else for you. I'm like, oh, well, this is unique. I've never seen this before. You know, what else do you have? And so they pulled out this. They gave me a sword. I got, I'm like, I have a sword. (laughs) Men, you want it. I know you want it. It's like, I have a sword. Malachi says, men, be on your guard for your family. Be on your guard for your marriage. and Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Because there are all kinds of threats that come against you in this world. And so be on your guard. Be faithful to your family. Except the problem with a sword is, There are threats that come to our marriages. There are threats that come to our families that cannot be thwarted by a sword. There are threats that come into your family that cannot be pushed back by a gun. There are threats that come to your family that cannot be pushed back by a weapon of any physical kind. 
It's cool to have a sword, but this just hangs on my wall in my office. We need something more. If we're going to protect our families, defend our families, be on guard for them, we need something more. There are several kinds of threats that come into our family as followers of Jesus. We all live in the same house, so just like Malachi's people face threats to their families, we face similar kinds of threats. They may show up in different ways, but they're very familiar. Sometimes we are threatened in our families by what I would call fidelity traps. There are things that trap us and trip us in regard to our faithfulness in our families. One of those traps is pornography. Men, you hear about it. Ladies, there's a rising trend of women engaging in pornography. It's a, it's a fidelity trap. And guys, I'm not here to make you feel guilty about it. If, you, if it has captured your soul, you feel guilt enough already. I'm not piling on to that. But it is a trap to your faithfulness. It is a trap to your fidelity. It is something that Malachi would say to us, be our guard against it. Greed is a fidelity trap. Greed's a huge problem in our culture, in this community, because we are surrounded by shiny things and we always want more of them. Comparison is a fidelity trap in our culture, in our community. Because you always look at the person next door and you don't know they're maxed out on their credit card and the other credit card and the rest of their credit. You don't know all that. You just look at what they have and you go, wow, look at, they're ahead of me. And you hate to lose. So you compare yourself to somebody else. That's a fidelity trap. It comes against us as an enemy to our household. We are threatened by enemies of faithfulness as well. Anger is an enemy of faithfulness. When you let anger rise into your marriage, into your family, into your household, it threatens your household. Sometimes that angerness sinks down into bitterness and the bitterness seeps down into the groundwater of your life. It poisons the groundwater of your life. It's an enemy of faithfulness. The pursuit of illicit gain, the pursuit of illicit sex, those things are enemies of faithfulness in your marriage. Our households are threatened by emotional challengers sometimes. Alcoholics Anonymous has a little acrostic that I've learned from my friends who are involved in that program, and uh, they, they have this little thing called HALT. It's an acrostic. It, it, it means whenever you are hungry or angry or lonely or tired, you're more susceptible to temptation. You're more susceptible to another drink. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you are more susceptible to sexual temptation when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. They're emotional challengers to our family. Sometimes an emotional challenger comes in the form of a friend at work who listens to you, listens way better than your spouse listens to you. Never mind that when your spouse is trying to listen to you, they've got three toddlers running around trying to get their attention while you're trying to get their attention. Never mind that, that your spouse has to change diapers and get dinner ready and go to work and make everything happen for the family where your coworker just has to sit and listen to you. But it's so pleasant when they sit and listen to you. 
So they listen to you at work, and sometimes they begin to listen to you after work, and it becomes an emotional threat to your family. I've seen emotional challengers to families when a friend of yours gets divorced, and they're so enamored by their newfound freedom that they start to, you, they start to talk to you about their freedom. They start to badmouth marriage, then they begin to badmouth your marriage, then they begin to badmouth your spouse, and you listen. It's an emotional challenger to your marriage. And Malachi says to you, be on your guard against that. How do you do that? How do you be on your guard against all those threats that come into, into our world, into your life, into your household? When I was getting this series ready back in the summer, I was thinking, there's, some, there's something that we say in our culture. There's some phrase or something that we say in our culture. I hear it every now and then that, that talks about, like, preserve, protect, and defend. It's like, we ought to do that with our families. We ought to preserve and protect and defend our families. I'm like, where is that? And then I realized as we're entering a presidential, we're in, we're, we're into our disgust to a presidential cycle again. And we're going to end up with a new president you know, next January, sorry to um, open that wound, but um, we are. And the President of the United States makes an oath. When they begin their term in office, they make an oath. This is where that phrase comes from. The President, the new President, will raise a hand and he will say this, or she will say this, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. What if you were to make that pledge to your family? Or something like it. Not, you know, not the United States. But my family. I solemnly swear to do my best to preserve and protect and defend my spouse, my marriage, my family. I will preserve and protect and defend them against all comers. Because there are all kinds of people that come against your marriage. And they don't always mean to. They don't usually mean to. But it happens. I promise to preserve and protect and defend my family. Well, of course, that's what marriage vows are for. Right? I mean, you don't probably, you probably didn't stand at an altar and go, I promise to preserve and protect and defend you, you know, against all comers. You probably didn't do that in your marriage vows, those of you who are married, but you know, something like that. And sometimes people renew their marriage vows because they're like, I, I got to say it again. Maybe we need to say that again and again. I'm going to preserve and protect and defend my household against all comers. Anyone who would damage, who would threaten to damage my household relationships. How do you stand guard for your family? Interestingly, about 400 years or 500 years after Malachi wrote his prophecy, the last prophecy in the Old Testament, the apostle Peter wrote a letter to the Christians, the Christ followers who were scattered around the Roman Empire. And in that letter, he described how do you preserve and protect and defend your family. His letter or this piece of his letter, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 3. So again, if you have your Bible and you want to turn over to this, let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. 
Here's some really helpful information for your household. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And husbands, in the same way, Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Where Peter leaves off is where Malachi started. He said, you you guys that I'm writing to, you've got a problem with your prayers. You're praying and you're praying and you're praying, but you don't think God is hearing. It doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere with God. There's a lid on your connection with God. He goes, let me tell you what's happened. You've not protected and preserved and defended your family. And here's how you can. And so he starts off with wives. So ladies, buckle up. He starts off the wives. He says, wives, in the same way, Submit yourselves to your husbands. Let's skip over that part. That's a hard part. In verse 3, he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Now, stop for a second. There's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. Who who created beauty? Come on, there's only one answer. It's church, right? It's like, okay, so who created beauty? God did. And who created cosmetics? Oh, wait, 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 Estee Lauder, I don't, somebody else did, I don't, I don't know. But all that means, all cosmetics means is putting something in order. So ladies, when you're putting all the stuff on, you're just putting it all in order. Good job, there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. In fact, the person that Peter used as his model for ladies to follow after, her name was Sarah. She was the wife of Abraham. She's one of the most beautiful women in the Bible. She's gorgeous. And I know there's no pictures of her, but they they describe her that way back in the book of Genesis. She was this gorgeous woman. And in fact, she was so beautiful, she and her husband Abraham were making a little journey outside the country because there was a famine and things like that. And Abraham knew. He looked at his wife and said, babe, you are so good looking. When we get to Egypt, would you just tell them you're my sister? Because if they see you and they think you're my wife, they're going to take me out so they can have you. Just, Just tell them you're my sister, which is really not very faithful on his part. Come on, Abraham, preserve, protect, and defend, buddy but she was beautiful. There's nothing wrong with beauty. The challenge with beauty is it fades. And not for any of you ladies in the room, not yet. Y'all look wonderful. But the day is coming. It fades. I know. Way to bring hope, Pastor Brad. (laughs) Wait for it. There is another kind of beauty that is internal, and it is unfading. It doesn't pass away. And it looks like this. It looks like what you see in verse 1. Now, here's where it gets 
sort of hinky for us, I think, in our generation. He says, ladies, submit yourselves to your wives. And people go, oh, it's the S word. And we get all whacked about that. Here's what it means. And if you've been here very long, you've heard me talk about this before. If you're newer with us, here's what it means. To submit to someone else means, or to something else, means to stand under something to hold it up. The other way he describes it in 1 Peter 3 and the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians 5 is that it looks like respect. There is nothing unseemly about respect. There is nothing that is belittling about someone who respects another person. He says, wives, you want to preserve and protect and defend your family, then start right here. Respect your husband. Lift him up. Stand under him to hold him up. What man wouldn't benefit from that? And in the process of doing that, you preserve and protect and defend your husband. And in the process, you will meet your husband's greatest need. There's nothing your husband needs more than to be respected by his wife. There is nothing. You women who are married, you will never give a better gift to your husband than respect honor and some of you will say yeah 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 but he's not respectable it's fascinating peter didn't ask that he didn't he didn't put it that way he didn't say hey if your husband's respectable you should respect him you don't need commands for that kind of stuff that's obvious he just says you want to preserve and protect and defend your family you want to be on guard for your family ladies respect your husband It's a blessing to him. It's an encouragement to you. It will lift your family. Wives, never undercut your husband with disrespect in private, in public, when the horn sounds. (laughs) Never disrespect your husband. Never... Never shame him. When you do, it's like you took a sword and you cut him off at the ankles. Respect him. Now, men, lest you get all haughty about this thing and like, ha, 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 look what you have to do. Then look what he says to men in verse 7. He says, men, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. In the same way. See, here's a fascinating thing. People distort the Bible so readily, so quickly. I don't know if it's because we want to or we just get confused about what it says. But there's not a double standard between what God expects for men and what God expects for women. There is not a double standard. It's not like God says, hey, women, you should submit. And submit, and hey, men, you should lord it over them. You should be the boss. You should go, yeah, yeah, do, you know, you, obey me, woman. There's no double standard in this. He says, husbands, in the same way. How? With respect. Live with consideration toward your wife. That means to be thoughtful about her. Consider it. Consider her. Be thoughtful about her. With respect. That's where it begins. In the same way. And in fact, if you go back to verse 1 where he talks about the women, he says, 
wives in the same way. You're like, wait, you just started the chapter. What do you mean in the same way? Well, look at chapter 2, which comes before chapter 3. He's now talking about Jesus. He says, look, Jesus submitted himself to the cross. He put himself under you to lift you up. Wives, in the same way, do that for your husbands. And he gets to the husbands last of all. He goes, husbands, you've heard it over and over and over. Now, in the same way, you do that. Be thoughtful, be considerate as you live with your wife. Because in that process, you preserve and protect and defend her. You preserve and protect and defend your marriage. In the same way. There's one more thing I want you to see. In a household, there is it, often there's a marriage. Obviously, there are households with single people, but in the households that he's talking about here, he's talking about those who are married. Now, often or usually, those people that are married have children that are growing up in their household. And so he says, part of protecting your family and preserving your family against the threats that come against it is teaching your children these kinds of things. It's interesting that in Proverbs chapter 5, you find Solomon, who was the son of David, who didn't get a lot of great coaching from his dad, apparently. He's coaching his son. He says, son, pay attention to this. Live this way. And so he gives a little statement about marriage and about the sexual relationship in marriage in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 to 20. And you can go read that later on and find out how Solomon coached his son. But right in the middle of that, He makes this one little statement to his son in verse 18. He says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. He says, son, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. For sons or daughters, let's apply it on both sides of this. That word rejoice that that Solomon used is a word that means to think highly of, to be high on to be proud of. Solomon says, make that your attitude toward your wife. Think highly of her. Be high on her. Be proud of her. Do you know why, men? It's because your wife is a mind reader. She is. You go, no, she never knows what I'm thinking. She doesn't get me at all. I'll tell you this, she always knows what you're thinking about her. Whether you say it or not, she feels it. And if you are high on her, she feels it. If you think highly of her, she feels it. If you rejoice in who she is, she feels it. And she probably lives to it. But if you're down on her and you're low on her and you're not pleased with her, she knows it. And she probably lives toward it. And ladies, you can flip that over on its head for your husband as well because you can say, you know, your husband is a mind reader too. He knows how you feel about him. He knows what you think about him. You may not say it out loud, but he knows. Rejoice in the spouse of your youth. Or let's just say rejoice in your spouse. Or let's just say rejoice in your family, in your family relationships. Think highly of them because most likely because they know what you're thinking about them, they will live to what you think about them, whether up or down. So be on guard. 
for your family and do not live unfaithfully. Lord, I pray for us that that would be true of us. We have a gift of being able to have you in our lives and you give us these words and you inspire those words with your spirit and you've put your spirit right inside of us. I pray, Lord, that you would use those words you've put in us today and you would inspire us to rejoice in our family. Knowing that some of those families have great pain today, But Lord, may we live with respect. May we live with consideration toward the other. May we not tell ourselves a clever story to justify our own bad behaviors, but may we tell a story that lifts up our loved ones before you. Lord, thank you for that. We love you. We want to follow after you. Amen.